morning, and welcome to episode 584 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh of Grantland. Hello, Ben. Hi. How are you? Packing my bags for Packing San, your bags to San go Diego. Where? <laughs> <laughs> you, always, you, know, you mock my business trips every time. I, I actually was uh, going to suggest as the uh, maybe replacement game to non-revelatory trade rumors, the uh, winter meetings attendee who has no need to be there game. Well, like just gonna make fun of like Grant Brisby for being there. <laughs> like just Grant Brisby just is gonna be like scouting out fountains with like seven seven cameras and and a notebook, just <laughs> waiting for somebody to go into a fountain. It's yeah. like the yeah. only reason that Grant Brisby has to be in San Diego, just fountain watch. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, so I thought that would be a fun game. And here you are, the champion, <laughs> the champion of the game. Why you can't be the champion. champion and the judge. I have no less reason to be there than many other people who have little reason to be there. You um, have, you will travel farther than than maybe all of them, though. That's true. And uh, and you actually have other things in, that you should be doing. I I know this. I'm aware <laughs> of these things. I can't tell people what they are, but I know that you have things you should be doing, and they are not uh, in San Diego. Maybe they will be. Maybe they could you will be. Actually... They could be anywhere I am. They could be. What is your plan? Does it change anything that I am then going to Los Angeles for the Grantland holiday party? Yeah, it does. I it's... haven't actually met my editor, my employers, so yeah. that is a large part of the reason why I'm making this trip. Okay, that actually is a good reason. Okay, so now someone else is the champion of going to the winter meetings for no reason. When is the holiday party? Friday. Friday, and uh, you should come on up here. It's kind of far. I think I uh, Google I Google Maps it, and it was not close. But I hope it, to have lunch with Jason Wojciechowski. It's close by uh, California standards, though. Uh huh. It's uh, I mean, it's not close because where you are, uh, three hundred and fifty-five miles, you know, puts you in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. For us, though, it's it's like just uh, it's a quick hop. It's basically uh, two turns, hmm. two turns, and you're here. Maybe you should hop on down. I would. I, I, can't. I can't. Yeah, you've got a book to edit. I've got the book. <laughs> Convenient. Uh, uh, yeah. The, the convenient book. <laughs> it's so easy. It's so convenient for me to have a book. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what are you going to do? What is your plan for while you're there? How, how are you going to maximize this trip? What are you going to be working on? What's your plan for tomorrow? I don't really have one. I wish I had a good plan, but I I don't. Having been there before, I I don't know. It's you can do the thing that everyone does, where they go like look at all the minor league vendors and everything, and you can walk around and see that, or you can just people watch or whatever. Or if you're an actual newsbreaker, you can presumably do that while you're there. But for me and for most people who do what we do, it seems to be sort of sit there and write about stuff as it happens and maybe catch up with people that you know, other writers, other people with teams, and and that's about it. Huh. Really? That's it? What uh so you don't have any you don't have any uh 
when when you land on 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 the ground, you don't have a plan for what your first article is going to be. You're not reporting anything out. You don't. You're not sort of on the lookout for one particular thing yet. Nope. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Does that stress you out, or are you just uh, content? Have you conceded that you might not do anything except for transaction analyses that you could do from home? That's what I did last time I was there. It's yeah. Sort of what I expect to do again. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. I had a couple ideas, emailed some people, nothing has come together, so I might just end up doing that. Okay. All right. Well, have fun. <laughs> Thank you. What uh what hotel is it? It's the yeah, Manchester been, Grand Hyatt. I've been to a conference or two there in my day. Uh-huh. Went uh drove down there one time to watch a superintendent speak at a uh California League of Superintendents meeting. Mm-hmm. It's pretty fun. I was the only non-superintendent in a room of like 200 superintendents. Mm. So you like must have had mascot. more of a plan than I do. Uh, you should do that. <laughs> if I see any superintendents, I'll talk to them. All right. Uh, all right. So uh, any uh, any business? Not particularly. We've got a, a few rumor submissions, but not ones I'm particularly excited about. There was... There is a John Heyman one that follows the standard may consider construction. I might just stop mentioning may considers because we've covered that ground. The Braves may consider Stephen Drew for second base. There was a better one, probably Joe Frisaro of MLB.com tweeted that the Marlins are willing to part with pitching if deal is right. And he linked to his story, which had a headline, Marlins willing to part with pitching if deal is right. They should really, I, this is again an, an editor. If the tweet was simply, if the Mar- if it was just Mariners, uh, Marlins willing to, to part with pitching, that's mm-hmm. fine. That would be fine. Yeah. That, that would be a way of saying that the Marlins have decided that pitching is potentially an area of surplus on the team. And that if they need to upgrade, if they want to upgrade elsewhere, uh, they are considering uh, which pitchers might be replaceable, that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it is the extra quote-unquote information that devalues the whole tweet. I agree. And the same, well, yeah, I think that's often the case. Mm-hmm. Okay. But anyway, yeah, you're, the, those are fairly repetitious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does it surprise you that the Astros have been connected to David Robertson so many does times? Because uh, the, 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 It doesn't surprise me, but I was, yeah. I was wondering today whether I should be surprised. Because... I, I, it does seem like... I was thinking about that, too, because the standard line when you have a yeah. team that hasn't been winning and they're going after a closer is, oh, why does that team need a closer? They don't even yeah. have that many leads they have to preserve. That's a luxury item. And, exactly. Yeah, but... that's been BP. That's I mean, that was one of like the seven founding principles <laughs> of BP, Is it seemed to me. Like, I remember reading you know, 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006. That was just every... Uh, every every time a bad club was linked to a closer or whatever that you would you would hear that that was just sort of accepted knowledge and and there's a lot of sense to it. Yeah, and in this case, I mean Robertson seems like he's going to get a four year deal maybe, and certainly within that span of time, the Astros expect to be good and need a closer. So, is it just that they think that he is going to be the best closer available in the next few years, and they want to make sure they have him when they need him? Or did they read Russell Carlton's 
article about a year ago when he wrote about whether young pitchers don't develop when the bullpen implodes all the time. And he found he was he was writing about the Astros in that article, and he found a slight effect that he thought suggested that maybe there was some impact on young pitcher development, but nothing that would make you run out and sign David Robertson. So, well, I don't think the Astros, um, I don't think the Astros are a team anymore that isn't buying. They are, they won mm-hmm. seventy games. I don't think that they would. I don't think they would necessarily consider next year like the the best year in their window, mm-hmm. but this is definitely the bridge year. This is the push for respectability year, right? Mm-hmm. It, it has to be. Yeah. Um, and so uh, if you're if you see yourself as the 2013 Royals, uh, for instance, um, then and you've got money to spend, which I assume they've got money to spend, and like you said, Robertson will be there through the good years too, and there might not be a a better closer who's available to you between now and then. And it's not the thing too, is that, um, you know, you only need one shortstop. It's hard to find a shortstop, but you do only need one of them and you only need, you know, one center fielder and it's kind of hard to find them, but you only need one of them. Relievers are easy to find, but you also need seven of them. Like you're never going to be like too many relievers. We have Mm -hmm. all these good relievers and there's not any innings to put them in. Like you could maybe make the case that if you had, uh, that there's a uh, a little bit of a uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Uh, uh, you know, when the return gets less, diminishing, diminishing returns. returns. <laughs> uh, when you have them in lower leverage, but I mean, you basically you're never ever 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 going to stop needing good relievers. Like, there's never been a team that had too many good relievers. So, uh, sure, go ahead and pick them up when you can. I, it seems good to me. Seems like a good move. And um, there's also the element, which is probably. Uh, somewhat significant with the Astros that uh, maybe each move they make makes it easier for them to, to get the next guy. Right now, I have to imagine that they're considered a unattractive destination for a good portion of free agents. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know exactly how much... Russell will answer this but uh, <laughs> soon, I assume. But I don't know how to quantify how much more a bad team has to pay to get a guy or how many free agents aren't actually available to them because of, uh, of how bad they are. Um, but these moves seem to have some factor in changing the narrative around a team and making it easier for them to, to sign the players they need. I was, uh, I think we talked about this one year ago when we were discussing the, the, the Dexter Fowler trade, um, and maybe the Scott Feldman signing in, uh, and I made the, the, the point uh, or the, the case I guess I tried to make the point in Dexter Fowler transaction analysis that uh, you trade for Dexter Fowler because um, it, it the difference between maybe winning 60 games and winning 70 uh, is a few million dollars you might be able to save signing guys the following winter mm-hmm. uh, if you're the Astros and so it's really an investment in the next offseason and mm-hmm. you could make the case that David Robertson is somewhat similar that uh, partly by being a big name signing, it uh, makes it easier this offseason, and partly by helping them uh, win some more games, it makes it maybe easier next offseason. So I would be, um, I wouldn't, I'm not surprised they're interested, and I, I would, I think I would think I would applaud it if they signed him, unless it was for uh, nine years and 175 million dollars. <laughs> uh-huh. Although with inflation, <laughs> you're right, might not be that bad. Mm-hmm. Might not be that bad. Mm-hmm. I would bet that in nine years, a good closer would be making $20 million. 
I wouldn't bet that David Robertson will be a good closer in nine years. Mm-hmm. But many stranger things have happened. How old is David Robertson? 29. Too old. He's old. Uh, yeah. That's old. He's not young. Good. He's been around a long time, Ben. Mm-hmm. He's a free agent. I just, <laughs> I just put that. It's like he's got like six years of service time at this point. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, 61, 66, 61, 66, 64 innings. Innings, so. yeah. He's been pretty consistent there. Yeah. All right. Um, anything else? Not for me. All right. I uh, I wanted to ask you about the Josh Donaldson trade that you wrote about for Grantland because you wrote about it about eight hours after we recorded, and it seemed like you had changed your mind. Uh, the headline suggested that I had changed my mind, perhaps, but uh, I didn't write the headline. The, the the actual text I felt like was more or less what I thought before. Okay. Yeah. I was probably yeah. I think I was probably. Uh, letting the headline influence. Mm-hmm. That happens. Uh, all right. I did want to talk about the Donaldson trade again, though. Okay. And the reason I wanted to talk about it is because uh, Ken Arneson, uh, who is uh, one of one a great writer, um, he wrote the A's essay in last year's annual. Uh, he doesn't write as much as we as the world uh, wishes, but every time he does, it's usually brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he wrote what he headlined, the long, long history of why I do not like the Josh Donaldson trade. This history is, in fact, very long. It starts one billion years ago. (laughs) Uh, I will quote, everybody lived in the oceans and everybody had only one cell each. This was quite a fair and egalitarian way to live. And it goes from there through each stage of life's development. This is a joke that people will make about writers sometimes that that they start in ancient history and go from there. But this actually did that. But it was it was fun read anyway. Yeah, it was a very fun read, and I, as I was reading this, I thought that it was just a gag. Uh, for most of it, I was like, uh, "Do you remember a year and a, a year two two years ago when Tim Marchman wrote his uh, his postseason awards posts at the Classical, no. and he would." Like it would be like the A.L. Cy Young and, and he would write, his post would just be like 1,700 words on Duke Ellington and it had nothing to do. And that was a fairly aggressive meta joke. And I thought that was this too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, in fact, though, toward the end, and this is what makes this post brilliant, is that you figure out that Ken was actually making a point. He had a very strong point. And uh, the point will, I don't know, it made me really think a lot this weekend about what it is uh, that we're that we're rooting for in baseball and what it is that the um, that the general managerization of baseball has done to the game and in particular it made me think about the Josh Donaldson move and so I'm going to sort of try to summarize Ken's argument Ken's argument is uh, and I'm going to skip to the present his argument is basically that there is often a rational decision that is good for the say betterment of the species or betterment uh, for the betterment of the individual, but that we as humans nonetheless do not always take because we have uh, some sort of humanity, some sort of uh, like, uh, I don't know, lingering, um, I'm 
really I'm really going to try hard not to misrepresent this. I probably will, but some sort of lingering uh, affection for the group uh, and uh, shared humanity that makes us not act in the most crass, self-interested way possible, um, and or even in the way that is uh, perhaps most explicitly uh, to the benefit of our particular tribe, um, and that uh, that for that reason. Uh, some large portion of the population uh, does not necessarily act rationally, but does act uh, in a way that is kind of good for our, for for everybody, for for us, for people who like love and uh, and and cooperation. So I'm gonna read now from Ken's piece. It's um, rather than try to keep on stumbling over a summary of it, I'm gonna read a couple of quick paragraphs. Some customers, of course, maybe 15 to 20 percent of them. Loved the competitive chutzpah it took for Bean to trade his best player. For them, winning is all that matters. Others, such as the author of this essay, were appalled. We other 80 to 85%. Perhaps we are evolutionary dead ends. The kind of people who let our emotions get in the way of us pulling the trigger. Perhaps we are the kind of people who, in the end, will lose. And thus fail to pass on our genes to the generations of people 200 million years from now. We are freeloaders, parasites feeding off the efforts of the 15 to 20% of the population who actually accomplished something. And uh, there's a lot of uh, meaning to the, some of the words chosen here that uh, if you had read the couple thousand words before it would be clear to you. The 15 to 20% is a significant number. Uh, but it's also um, that Ken is kind of making the point that uh, humanity might become ever more crassly rational, uh, but that we are still a very young species and we haven't yet developed the perfect, efficient, self-interested gene required to do whatever it takes. Uh, to survive or to protect our tribe at the expense of others. And uh, so the metaphor, I guess, is that in the same way, uh, baseball, sabermetrics, or whatever, uh, you know, whatever mode of rational decision-making has not yet evolved to the point where uh, it is always cruel and ugly and perhaps crass, but it is getting there. Uh, and that we see it in certain moves, we see it in certain uh, perhaps front offices, and uh, in Ken's estimation, we see it here in the trading of Josh Donaldson. Mm -hmm. And uh, is it, did you read this piece, Ben? Yes. Right. Is that have I gotten close? Do you think? I think so. Yes. Right. So that brings up the question, uh, which I want to ask you about, uh, which is that uh, we've talked on this show before. I think uh, we've talked about Will Leach's article. Uh, and you've, I think, maybe written about the article talking about how uh, many of us now um, uh, associate or sympathize more with the front offices and the people making the moves rather than the action on the field, that we have become, in, in essence, uh, GM fetishists. And uh, I think for, for a lot of good reasons. To, to me, for instance, the, the meta game is, is kind of richer and a little bit more interesting at times than the slog of 2-1 pitches and 1-2 fouls and all those sorts of things that make baseball sometimes interminable. Mm -hmm. uh, and there, it's also a lot easier to identify with the uh, you know scrawny guy in the suit than the muscular guy who doesn't look like me and does things that I can never dream of doing um, and who speaks a language that I don't speak and who uh, you know might come from, might literally come from a uh, background that I, uh, I'm not familiar with. Um, and so there's reasons, I think, why you and I and Baseball Prospectus and many of the people who are listening to this and many of the people who we read 
uh, have over the past couple of decades uh, become particularly focused on the role that the front office plays in the game. Um, but uh, I'm going to shift a little bit of direction here. When we talk about whether something is good for the game, I have often on this show talked about how there are three interest groups. There are the players, there are the owners, and there are the fans. And uh, I tend, depending on the situation, some of them, one of those groups might take more priority than another group. Generally, I think that the players are have the most stake in the game, uh, the fans second most, and the owners the third most. And yet, what has always been left out of that is that there is a fourth stake, a fourth shareholder in this that I had not included, which is the front offices, the people who actually dictate the way that the game is going to be played, uh, and yet uh, are not one of my three traditional stakeholders. And I wonder whether the influence of this fourth shareholder, this fourth stakeholder group, is becoming pernicious uh, mm -hmm. because uh, they don't serve the fan, they don't serve the player, and maybe they serve the owner, but they definitely don't, it seems to me, increasingly, they, they explicitly don't serve the player, and they explicitly don't serve the fan, and it has become increasingly aggressively uh, opposed to the interests of the player and the fan, it seems to me. And I don't think this happened as much in previous generations, but in this one, uh, this generation that um, has you know, been a very rich one for the front office watching fan uh, has nonetheless um, maybe taken a turn towards something that is slightly, a little bit, objectionable. And I wanted to see whether you agree with that, whether that makes sense to you, whether it is a threat to your enjoyment of the game going into the future, whether it applies to Josh Donaldson, and whether you think Ken's essay has a point or, um, or actually convinced you of something. Well, that's a lot of questions. I enjoyed the article. I think it has a point. I'm not sure I'm totally sold that this Donaldson trade represents something new or something that even is really opposed to the the nature of the game itself. I mean, first of all, is it is it new? Is it dramatically different from any other kind of move we've seen before, any kind of move we've seen Billy Bean make many times before. I wonder how much of... Wait, wait, let's pause, though. Mm -hmm. Because it is not... I don't think Ken's point is that Billy Bean is evolving. Mm -hmm. I think Billy Bean has always been this. Uh -huh. it, he is, Donaldson, like you noted, along with Gio Gonzalez, is a bit more extreme than the other post-free agent trades that he's made. Mm -hmm. uh, but Billy Bean is the, the evolutionary leap. He is, he is himself the seminal moment, right? Mm -hmm. And so the fact that this doesn't depart from Billy Bean, well, that's the point. This this is Billy Bean. Right. And I I don't know. I, I mean, has that really made it less fun to follow the A's? I think, if anything, it's made it more fun to follow the A's. Let me ask. Let me ask. Okay. okay. Has Billy Bean <laughs> You're gonna ask Jason? all his players... <laughs> way before free agency agency made it more or less fun to follow the a's all right okay I'll let you know. so you have to take into account that if that is the only way that he can truly keep them competitive and ken writes about that a bit how uh how he 
he wants the A's to win a World Series and he would enjoy them winning a World Series, but but that this is just too far for him. Um, but even I, so, I, I wonder whether, A, whether he would feel the same way if there had been a different return in this trade, how much, how much the fact that it seems like they didn't get a lot back factors into this emotional yep. reaction to it, and whether if it works out just fine and Brett Lurie's great and the prospects are great and Donaldson declines and the A's win again, whether anyone who currently follows the A's, including Ken perhaps, will actually disengage with the team, enjoy the playoff run less because it was built this way. I guess I have a hard time believing that. Well, you have to, though. I mean, you... Uh, the question of results is definitely relevant. If I, I imagine that the average A's fan uh, got a lot more enjoyment out of trading, uh, for instance, Mark Mulder than trading Tim Hudson, or got more out of trading Dan Heron uh, than um, Matt Holiday, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, I'm trying to think of another example. Because they got, you know, they for years they've been able to cheer those players that they added. That's that's definitely um, makes it more fun. Um, however, let's say that we don't know yet whether this is going to be one of the good ones or the bad ones. Uh, you have to you have to agree that the average A's fan would rather cheer for the player that they a know already. B, for the most part, love. C, are, you know, they're familiar with. Not everybody is, for instance, you or I. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, and it's, it's the old rooting for laundry argument. Yeah, and um, and uh, so, I mean, I, I think that there is a transaction cost, a transaction fee from the fan's perspective mm-hmm. um, where you you do love the new guy a little less, and you know, until you grow to love him more. Uh, right. But, but that's not immediate. And, uh, yeah. I would I mean, just. I, would I don't ch- think. Look, I don't think Billy Bean is going to A's fans and saying, uh, "I did it. I got. I got the guy you love more than Josh Donaldson." I mean, <laughs> he's he's going to make the case that well, they had to do it for financial reasons, that it makes mm-hmm. them more competitive in the long run. But he's not going to convince anybody they actually like Brett Lowry, Lori, Brett Lowry more than they like Josh Donaldson. He knows that that's not true. They don't. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. A's but- fans. If 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 an if the A's didn't have to do this to get better. No A's fan was going to propose this, right? Right, but... I have an answer, by the way, from Jason. <laughs> okay, what does Jason say? Jason says, less. He enjoys it. Uh, it has made it less fun to follow the A's. He says, I haven't read Ken's essay yet, but I'm more or less on board with him. It's depressing. I don't care about trading bad players at the height of their value like Trevor Cahill. Super trade. Awesome trade. I care about trading Tim Hudson and Josh Donaldson and Brandon Moss. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I, I guess I can't argue with an A's fan, although I... That's I, Jason, too. Like, Jason is at the, at the fairly extreme end of, of uh, you know, knowing that these players are commodities and uh, thinking of them that way as such. I mean, I imagine that the average person who picks up the newspaper uh, is processing this very differently than Jason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know. Maybe I don't care about that fan. Maybe, maybe that <laughs> fan is... Maybe that fan of uh, be so half checked out anyway that you know whatever by by a month from now it'll all be reset in his mind. Yeah, well, I wonder whether the Ace fan 
can really compare this way of operating to what might happen if they didn't operate this way, if they, I don't know, if they had been the royals or the pirates or something. And that's the extreme. Maybe maybe that wouldn't have happened. But maybe the, the A's fan is thinking, I wish that this team could win a different way and could win having the same players every year, but not mentally comparing to what the more likely outcome would be, which is having the same players and not winning as much. And maybe... Maybe ultimately it evens out. I don't know. But the the other question I have about the point is that Ken seems to draw a distinction between this ruthless way of winning and the nature of the game itself. He says, whether we believe in winning above else or not, sports provide a way to embrace our competitiveness without accepting the violence that often comes along with it, the desire to compete in a non-destructive fashion came about precisely because these emotions are tempering our competitiveness. Otherwise, we just kill each other all over the place. And I don't know that I see the distinction between what Billy Bean is doing and what the players are all doing. I mean, it's not literal violence, but it is about the most Darwinian environment you could come up with, right? Major League Baseball and the whole affiliated baseball system is the most dog versus you know doggy dog do anything you can to beat the other guy and deprive him of his livelihood so that you can be better and make more money and whatever the ultimate goal of succeeding in life is it's it's the same sort of ruthlessness on a a civil level but this is Billy Bean making a trade is on the same nonviolent level. It seems to me like it's the same same attitude that players have competing for spots on a roster is is what front offices are doing also. Um, well, I, I don't know that I agree with that. I, it's where there's a, a there's a difference because there are unwritten rules that players follow that they have created as a, kind of an as a as an etiquette as manners as a as a way of showing that they are in fact uh, yeah. not not willing to stomp on each other but uh, that's, that they, well yeah i'm sorry and, to interrupt but the i mean the unwritten rules rarely change the outcome of the game right they're largely the unwritten rules dictate situations where the game is already decided and then it's mm-hmm. about whether you want to embarrass someone or not but it's not it's not you're not deferring to to the other team and losing because of it you're deferring to the other team and winning eight to one instead of ten to one or something and there are unwritten rules in front offices too right like waiver claims or whatever right like not not claiming a guy it's the same sort of i think the not claiming a guy is sort of mutually assured destruction i think that's where that comes in but yeah you might be right i i mean i i don't I, i think that i think that where it becomes um, I, th- I think where it becomes a, a perhaps a little troubling is not that we want a GM to you know not make trades that make him better. I mean, clearly, right? Billy, it, it is bad for an Oakland A's fan to have his team be uh, bad for twenty years, and so you have to take certain steps to make sure that you are not bad for twenty years. And sometimes those things are going to get in the way. I think that what you maybe sense is frustrating, Ken, is that 
that doesn't seem the the fans' response doesn't seem to be a factor at all. Uh, and I don't know that this is even necessarily a Billy Bean thing. This might be as much as anything a you and I thing. The way that we write about these things, not you and I necessarily, although sometimes you and I, but this industry of stat head writers who assess these things uh, coldly and rationally, mm-hmm. um, it is it is just not an issue whether the fan is happy. It only becomes an issue whether the fan is happy if it is going to keep the fan from spending money and therefore end up hurting the A's. Otherwise, mm-hmm. otherwise there is no sense that the fan as a group is a stakeholder that, that should have its wishes um, uh, respected just as a matter of courtesy. As a matter of business, yes. As a matter of, um, of uh, like, I don't know, altruism or, or something, not. And it's sort of the same way with players. It's like, okay, yeah, you don't want to abuse, you don't want to abuse your players to the point where they revolt or they won't sign with you after six years or they won't sign an extension with you or the Players Association is going to come down with sanctions or you're going to push too far and lose your pick or whatever. You don't want to do that to the point where it's going to hurt you. But at, until it hurts you, ah, screw them, right? I mean, isn't mm-hmm. there... And I don't like like I'm saying I don't know that that is I, I don't know how the conversations in the front office go and Billy Bean I'm sure is a very good human being my guess is that he is not nearly that coldly calculating but the way that we assess these moves it's almost to the point where um, it feels to me like uh, the front offices have become like corporations where they have an obligation to their shareholders to their mm-hmm. uh, to make profit and therefore you almost have to dump all that garbage into the atmosphere unless the government's going to fine you because if you're not taking every step you can to make a profit for your shareholders they're you know you're behaving unethically as a corporation like the corporation's only morality uh, is to make a profit and uh, the front office's only morality is to win more games. And if you're not doing things to win games, then you are behaving immoral. And that is, like, it is a competition. So maybe that's legitimate. Maybe we have signed on to this, that mm-hmm. in a arbitrary <laughs> athletic pursuit where we have agreed that winning is determined by scoring more runs than the other and that ultimately it is the only way that this is significant, um, maybe that is the right moral code for front offices to follow. I can see, though, why it is frustrating for a fan and frustrating for a player, and I can see why it might be better for the game long-term if there was a more, sort of a richer and more nuanced morality that guided decisions. Mm. Well, yeah, or maybe it's more of a paternalistic attitude, like uh, the front office having the fans best interests in mind and doing things that the fan might not approve of in the short term, but will be glad we're done in the long term. Like the fan, if you put it to a fan vote, maybe the fans would never decide to trade a star player, someone they recognize and know and have enjoyed watching. They would, maybe they'd always want Derek Jeter out there at, you know, 45, just, just, running out there in the lineup every day hurting the team just because they have fond memories of Derek Jeter. And so at some point the front office has to step in and say that 
the fans' ultimate interest is that the team wins, yep. and the fan will be happiest in the long run if the team wins. And sometimes you have to deprive the fan of something he or she enjoys watching in the short term, and they'll thank you later. They'll they'll buy tickets later to come see your team, which is winning with new and different players. And I don't know, maybe maybe we're overestimating the extent to which fans care only about winning as opposed to the personalities on the team, or maybe not. Maybe fans are overestimating their own loyalty to the players. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think the the point you make, though, that point, that last one you made, is very strong. And I, uh, it it is possible that that is ultimately what we want. We want a game that is purely competitive, so that we can watch it, uh, knowing that every step has been taken uh, uh, to to try to win. And the integrity of the game, in that sense, the integrity of the competition, is very pure. I'm not sure that that's not the case. And I'm also not sure that I uh, I don't have the same. I will say that I don't have the same reaction to these things that Ken does. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, I am pretty ruthlessly coldly calculating when it comes to my rooting interests. I don't think that it. I don't think that I have been uh, emotional about a move that any sports team has made uh, in in the past fifteen years, mm-hmm. uh, other than as it relates to when you're losing. I so uh, as as a person who roots the way I do, these GMs are serving my interests. And, mm-hmm. um, and uh, again, to just really make it very clear, I, I, I assume that these guys are, uh, A, more nuanced than I'm giving them credit for in their decision-making, and B, even if they're not, super good people who are not doing anything wrong or evil. This is like totally legitimately within the rules, and this is a complicated question. Um, so I, I don't, it sounds perhaps like I'm besmirching things that I don't actually intend to besmirch. Um, mm-hmm. but you're right. I, there, I think you can make the case that, um, that the things that, uh, each, each interest group does to protect its own interests, uh, in a way protect the ecosystem of the game as a whole, that you can make the case that for instance, owners doing things that are coldly, greedily self-interested, to basically steal money from everybody they can, uh, that that money, uh, you know, makes the game a, a, a richer place and incentivizes players to be better and choose the sport and uh, that it leads to great ballparks and then it leads to great TV productions and um, that ultimately it makes for a better show even if it is sort of disgusting and icky to see this money being funneled into rich people's Pockets, and so in the same way, I think you can make that case for every interest group mm-hmm. uh, within it. I don't know. I I I generally uh, think that it would be better for the sport if Josh Donaldson didn't have to get traded after two years. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure. Yeah, I don't know that anyone would disagree with that, right? I mean, Billy Bean probably wishes he didn't have to trade Josh Donaldson. Yeah. Or, well, <laughs> unless they don't get along, but other other than that, right? And so, um, so if that's a given, then Billy, you know, the the front the front office is at least a part of that decision. Um, mm-hmm. There was no requirement, for instance, that he be traded. They made that decision, and yeah, there's a line. If, for instance, if they traded, let's say that they did the math and they decided that trading Josh Donaldson was worth. 
I don't know, just 30 million units of whatever, okay? 30 million units is a lot. Say it's, say it's dollars. Say it was worth 30 million surplus dollars. Uh-huh. Uh, I'd have a hard time saying don't do it, even if it makes Ken sad. Mm-hmm. But now what if they did the math and it was a penny? And they're like, well, it's a penny. We'll take it. And I mean, you would you would think, well, that's kind of shady, right? Like mm-hmm. that, you're making Ken sad for a penny. You're making tens of thousands of people sad for a penny. And so we don't really know necessarily where the where the how much how many units of pleasure or how many units of uh, of whatever goodness the A's are reaping out of this is. And mm-hmm. we don't know where the line is for how many units is worth making Ken sad. To uh, compute it accurately, you'd have to quantify the effect of that sadness. You'd have to figure out whether Ken will attend fewer A's games or tune in to watch fewer A's games and you'll have lower ratings and you'll make less money in the long term. So that's the super two two layers of ruthlessness where you have to figure out whether the sadness is actually costing you anything. Cause yeah, well, but even if it's not costing you anything, like when, when economists, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to botch this one. I know it. <laughs> Here it comes. You know, you've heard this. Economists will actually um, factor the, the uh, you know, a nation's happiness into some of its economic models. And they have ways of measuring, like, how much happiness is worth. They have ways of basically getting people to put a price on their own happiness mm-hmm. uh, by, you know, seeing what they'll sacrifice for certain things. And so happiness is an actual economic value. And so when we talk about a country doing something rationally, for instance, um, uh, you know, investing in the arts might not have any profit motive for a country, but it makes sense if you consider the happiness of its people to itself be a commodity. And uh, in the same way, a team, a baseball team, uh, should, to the fans, certainly, uh, and I would think to the other shareholders, the idea of a baseball team as being a community, a nation unto itself, uh, has some value. And you should want all the other people in your nation to be happy. That is, uh, in a sense, that is the larger tribe. And um, so if Ken, is, if Ken is not happy, whether or not it affects how many games he watches or goes to, uh, I would think that there would be some uh, good case to be made that... Billy Bean, or whatever GM, as a responsible steward of this nation's decision-making, uh, should take into account that happiness, at least to some degree. Mm-hmm. Well, the serendipitous thing is that the interests of front offices and fans have been aligned more often lately. Mm-hmm. There's There's been less turnover, more more players getting locked up to long-term extensions at young ages, and I wrote about how the turnover rate has declined since its peak in, I don't know, a decade or so ago. And so for now, at least, we are both happy. Front offices get their cheap young players signed up at below market rates because because they're taking a chance on them early, and fans get to experience their their youth and their primes and not worry about them leaving quite as early. So... That's the the happy way to end this episode. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we will look for your emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. 
We are four ratings or reviews away from 500 on iTunes, so we would welcome some of those and encourage you to subscribe to the show on iTunes. This is launch day for Banished to the Pen, the blog organized by fans of Effectively Wild. So go to banishedtothepen.com to check out their work. I know they have lots of stuff lined up for week one. Someone is working on Effectively Wild episode recaps, which is something I'm excited about and kind of scared about. And please support our sponsor, the Play Index, by going to baseballreference.com, subscribing to the Play Index using the coupon code BP, and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We will be back. I don't know. When will we be back? Will we be back tomorrow? I guess it depends on on whether it's a busy day at the winter meetings. But I would, Yeah, I would think it's a pretty good chance, though. I would say that the bar is lower tomorrow than it is most off days. That's true. But we'll be back on Wednesday at the latest.